We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. All right, everybody. I'm super stoked about today's podcast because Creek and I are going to dive into how to develop your own forever food system, which is all about how to grow, raise, and forage for some or even all of your food needs forever in the event of a catastrophic long-term interruption in your food supply. We'll get into small footprint techniques to raise chickens, rabbits, bees, and even guinea pigs, whether you're in a rural situation or an urban situation. And we're going to share everything you need to start a highly productive raised bed garden almost anywhere using heritage seeds and why having a small footprint food production plan is so important. Then Creek and I are going to share how we've both built edible and medicinal plant landscapes around our homes and wrap up our discussion with traditional ways to preserve your produce and how to utilize your forever food surplus as a valuable barter asset in a worst case scenario situation and a lot more coming up on today's show. But before we get into all this great content, during much of the pandemic, I stepped away from this podcast and my YouTube channel so that I could accelerate the research and the writing of the Tiny First Aid Guide probably a lot like you, I began to see how fragile our first response and emergency medical services really were. And now with more and more doctors, nurses, police, and first responders losing their jobs or quitting, it's more important than ever for all of us to learn the essential skills we need to become medically prepared and ready to administer first aid at all times. So I'm proud to announce that the Tiny First Aid Guide is here. It's been a blessing to see it receive rave reviews and become a number one new release in first aid over on Amazon. So to get this guide into your hands as soon as possible, go over to ultimatesurvivaltips.com. All you have to do is load up your cart with one or more tiny first aid guides and use code FIRSTAID20 at checkout for 20% off tiny first aid guides. Trust me, you and everyone you care about needs this guide, so go check it out. Okay, let's get into today's discussion with Creek. All right, Mr. Creek Stewart, welcome back to the show, brother. Hey, good to be here, David. I appreciate the opportunity as always, and this is this is going to be one of my favorite topics, I think. Man, I am so excited. We were, we were talking a little bit right before we started the the podcast here, and and I am most I am probably more excited about this episode than I have been in like two years of of Ultimate Survival Tips videos and podcasts all put together. Well, this is going to be a good one. This is part, I mean, I didn't think we were going to get three parts out of disaster food and long-term food storage, but here we are on, on part number three of this, um, of this series on food. So in the first series, in the first part, we talked about kind of getting started with long-term food storage. And then we moved into some details, kind of digging a little bit deeper with long-term food storage for anybody who hasn't listen to those first two podcasts, you should, because they're great, great foundational, um, 
it's a lot of great foundational information. Uh, but part three here, we're digging in a little bit deeper to this category that David calls, and I love this name, forever food. So this is um, this is more of food production, the food production side of long-term food readiness. Wouldn't you say, David? I would like to set this goal. Let's save people decades of trial and error through our own successes and mistakes. What do you think okay. of that? I love it. <laughs> and at the end, it. at the end, I've got a whole, I've got not a whole bunch, but I've got three or four resources here for people. Like if you want to dig to the next level and actually do some of this stuff, I, I think we're going to give you a lot of actionable things to start out. But if you want to go deeper, Creek and I are going to give you some additional resources, especially Creek's new book, Disaster Ready Home. I mean, he's got step by step how you can get into exactly what we're going to talk about today. And before we go on, Creek, I just want to let people know that they can contact the Survival Show podcast, Mel. And the way they can do that, the way you all can do that, is to email us at survivalshowpodcast at gmail.com and send us your questions. Creek and I would love to answer your questions. Other guests, we can answer your questions. Uh, tell us what you like, what you don't like, and uh, just let your voice be known. And if we feature a question of yours, on the podcast, we'll give you a shout out. So appreciate that. Let us know what you think of this episode moving forward. So Creek, Creek, where do we start? Where do you want to start here? Well, let's start for, let's just start with who this is for and why it's important. What do you say? Just a couple okay. of, a couple of quick That's thoughts great. about that. So this, this, this particular podcast about food production is for the person who wants to either experiment or begin the process of actually producing food, whether it's growing food in the, in the form of, of vegetables and gardens and things like that, or whether it's small footprint farming. Uh, so anything that we're talking about livestock wise um, in this particular podcast is going to be under the realm of small footprint. So something that you could theoretically do in a backyard. Okay. So we're not talking about, you know, you needing a, a, a an 80 acre farm or anything like this. Most of what we're going to describe here can be done in a very small footprint environment. And uh, why is it important? Well, it's important to each person for different reasons, but it would be, it would, it would give a lot of peace and security to a, a long-term disaster ready food plan to have some type of small footprint um, food production in place, whether it's as simple as a pot of herbs on the back patio or um, ra a rabbit hutch in the backyard or a coop of chickens in the backyard. So it's important for a lot of reasons and it gives, it gives a lot of peace of mind. So, and anyone can do this. Uh, these, these are things that um, some of the things we're talking about, maybe if you live in an apartment, that's not going to be feasible. Uh, but even some of the things that we'll discuss today, even if you were living in an apartment, you could take action on a few of these ideas. Uh, but for most people, uh, as long as you have a backyard and um, there aren't any like zoning issues, um, you know, it's different from every state and every city. But as long as you are legally allowed to have um, one of these one of these options in your backyard and anybody can do this. Wouldn't you agree, David? I would say so. I mean, even apartment dwellers, if you have a patio or a porch or you have a sunny side of uh, a room in your house, you can do container gardening. You can yep. do sprouting, right? I mean, yep. we're not talking about necessarily big stuff. It can be as big or as small as, as you have the capabilities right now to do easily. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I've been doing a lot of, we're starting a farm here 
And uh, I think year two and year three, I'm going to start working towards having a CSA community sponsored garden. And a lot of these people that are doing it are doing it in urban environments where they rent people's, you know, extra backyard and they're doing pretty high production stuff on like a quarter acre. Yeah. And so, you know, that might seem like a lot of land for somebody who lives in a, a town or a city and you know, it is, but you can do a lot with a little bit is I guess that's what I'm saying, whether it's sprouting right up to, you know, uh, our garden right here, Creek is about 40 by 50 and that, yeah, that's, that's a big it. garden. We can produce a lot. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, that sounds great. So this is, uh, so you would say that urban and apartment dwellers can do this also, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, Some of it for sure. And I think what I want to do in each one of these sections, I want to make an intentional point to give an action step, you know, not just not just talk and tell, but really get deliver some type of actionable step that if someone wants to do this, they can go here and right now is what to do in order to get that done. And so I think I'm going to make just a personal note here, like at the end of each one of these, at least for the ones who, that I have personal experience with, I'm going to give, I'm going to give you some real actionable information, just a few sentences worth. Okay. And if you miss that, I'll remind you if there's something that I'm talking about, you can remind me. Okay. And also Creek, before we go on, for those who have been hanging in there and are on uh, this particular podcast and have been following along with the other previous two, to this point, I have to ask you this. Are we actually going to talk about guinea pigs today? I'm gonna, we're going to get to guinea pigs for sure. So um, <laughs> just, to, just to tease the guinea pig conversation. So each year, 65 million guinea pigs are consumed as food in Peru, Peruvians. Peruvians eat 65 million guinea pigs a year. So prepare to change your thoughts about (laughs) guinea pigs as pets. Okay, because we as Americans, especially the who are listening to this as Americans, we're wired to see guinea pigs as pets, right? So we're going to look at guinea pigs as a totally different, um, totally different class of animal here in a little bit. And I'm most excited about this, too, because I actually we've been talking about this and joking around about it for a couple of weeks now, but I actually have not probed you. I know nothing about what you're going to talk about, so I'm going to be as surprised as everybody else. <laughs> All right. So why don't we get into this? And uh, where did you want to start? Did you want to talk a little, little bit about container trellis, window gardens, those those sorts of things? Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, you know, I'm a huge fan of. If, if you've never gardened before, I like to start small and work my way up, okay? And that's how I did it. You know, I grew up with a garden. My mom gardened, my grandma gardened, everybody in our family gardened. But when I moved out on my own, I was in an apartment. I wasn't, I didn't have a garden. I didn't have a yard. And so I, you know, I started with very small footprint gardening and worked my way up as my lifestyle changed. And, you know, now we have raised beds and we have a garden and the whole deal. So I... I think that everyone, if you haven't gardened at all and you want to, don't. It can be overwhelming to be to, to work your way into a large raised bed or any type of a garden. I would just say start out with really simple container trellis gardens, um, a window garden like a, a like a flower box that instead of flowers has herbs that you just are using as kitchen herbs. You know, even if it's as simple as oregano, mint. Uh, 
and a, a few of your favorite kitchen herbs, rosemary in in like either patio pots or in a flower box. That is really one of the first things you can do, one of the first action steps you can take to growing to growing your own stuff and getting your feet wet and cutting your teeth a little bit on gardening. Yeah, and this is a really good time of the year to be talking about this because more and more at, at your Home Depot and your Lowe's and your your garden stores, you're going to see those start to come to life. And one thing that's actually really convenient if you just want to start getting into this more and more, what we're seeing earlier in the season is like a container, essentially a, a tomato plant on a trellis in a pot ready for you to take home. Yeah. So if you want to get into it and you just, this is your first experience with gr- really growing anything yourself. Uh, places like Lowe's give you that opportunity. Just, you know, you just got to get there early and snatch those up because people like the convenience of that. And that's what I would recommend actually for somebody who's, who has zero experience growing anything. Don't worry about sprouting your own seeds. Don't worry about buying the seed packs, save that for later. Just buy these plants that are already started, that are already a few weeks or even, uh, even older. And start with something that's already half grown and just a few weeks away from producing a vegetable or a berry or whatever it is that, that you've got and, and work your way from there. Maybe the first season you buy plants that are already ready to go in a pot at Lowe's or Home Depot at a local nursery. And maybe the second season you start thinking about, okay, this year I'm going to start sprouting and planting some of my own seeds and, you know, buy those cool seed packs and everybody wants, you know, the, the colorful pumpkins and gourds. And by the time you are done shopping the seed pack section, you've got 40 or 50 different seed packs that you're never going to (laughs) plant. But um, I, that's the way I would do it. I would start season one with buying plants that are already growing and then season two is plant your own plants and, and work your way up in size of, of containers and gardens from there. Great. And we're going to circle back a little bit and we're going to talk more about if you want to go to the next step or you just feel like you want to jump in with both feet on the easiest way to essentially do a no dig gardening and no dig garden. Uh, which I think we're going to talk about, at least I'm going to talk about a little bit, Creek. Even if you don't have necessarily know what kind of soil you have, you don't have a tiller or anything, you can still start gardening now and have a productive garden. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Is that is that right, Creek? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Okay, cool. So you want to just talk a little bit about sprouting again here? Is that what you were yeah. thinking? Yeah, we talked about just real quickly. We'll gloss over sprouting. Um, we talked about sprouting in the last uh, in the last podcast a little bit. So sprouting. I mean, you're not going to get a smaller footprint garden than sprouting. So you can, can you if you go describe to describe what it is. Yeah. So sprouting is the process of germinating seeds into little tiny sprouts or microgreens, and those being the vegetables. So. Uh, microgreens and sprouts are incredibly nutritious. They are packed with vitamins and minerals and nutrients way more than the seeds and oftentimes even more than the full-grown plants or or vegetables that those plants produce. Sprouts are a superfood and they are an amazingly easy green green superfood to grow just on your kitchen table with no sunlight, no 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 dirt, no green thumb, no experience, hardly anything. You just need some ball jars, some sprouting lids, which are pennies on Amazon that fit wide mouth ball jars and fresh clean water, which you can get right out of your tap. 
I have, I would just. Uh, when you say ball jars, you're just talking about a regular, like, quart-sized canning jar, right? Glass, yeah, just a glass wide mouth uh, canning jar. Uh, and yep. I can, you can pick those up at Goodwill. Oftentimes you'll find those at Goodwill, even if you're on a budget. Um, if, if that sounds of interest to you, um, sprouting is a big part of my long-term food storage plan. I actually stock the, over 30 pounds of sprouting seeds, broccoli, radish, clover, alfalfa, a variety of beans, mung bean being one of them. So I stock an entire mix of sprouting seeds specifically with the sole intention of sprouting those into vegetables so it fills, fills a, fest, a fresh produce gap in my long-term food storage because almost every long-term food storage pantry, right, is just full of dry bulk grains or freeze-dried foods, no fresh produce at all. And so this fills a, a fresh produce gap in long-term food storage. I have a free sprouting course. Um, I, I would rather you go watch the sprouting course than us spend time on sprouting on a podcast because it's such a visual course. I will teach you step-by-step how to sprout for free. If you just go to creekstewart.com, look for the sprouting course splash banner and just click on it, sign up for it, and I'll walk you through step-by-step everything you need to sprout. It is the easiest, hands down, the easiest way to get fresh produce in a bug in survival scenario, at least, and no matter how much space you have. Excellent. Creek, and I'm looking at chapter five in your book. I think it's pages 83 through 94. So I'm just going to have to keep telling people this is the best. You've done a fantastic job giving all the photos that are needed step by step through the book, also. So yeah. grab the free course. And if you want to go, um, if you want to go grab the book, which I highly recommend to have in your your arsenal to refer to at any time, grab the book too. Great. Sprouting. Um, do we want to talk about CSAs now or do we want to talk about that when we get down to gardening a bit more? I'll let you talk about that down in gardening. I don't have any personal experience with CSAs, so I'll let I'll let okay. you dig into that. Um, but I do have maybe personal experience. But okay. maybe what I, I can just wrap, I can just do this in 30 seconds. Basically, a, a CSA is, I believe it stands for Community Supported Agriculture. Um, CSAs are really good, especially if you're in an urban area. You probably have one or two CSAs, if not more, in your city, maybe even in your neighborhood. And those are places where you can, most of the time you subscribe and you can get some of that fresh produce and also, a lot of CSAs give the opportunity so you can volunteer and you can get free or certainly uh, food a lot cheaper, uh, fresh fruit food throughout the growing season. Uh, so that's all. I think that's all we need to say about CSAs for now. Well, for some people, I could see how that could be a huge resource. So, I mean, especially yeah. for urban areas. And if if you're not that familiar with gardening, that's a perfect place to jump in. Like mm-hmm. you're going to be able to, you're going to be able to be mentored and learn beside someone else who knows what they're doing, whether it's pulling weeds, what weed, what's a weed and what's a plant that's sprouting. That's kind of important to know. Um, you're going to learn a lot by joining a CSA, even just rubbing elbows with folks. And especially uh, if you want to get into gardening or want to learn more about where your food actually comes from and how it grows, volunteering is a great way to go. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. 
Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Let's talk about chickens. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, let's talk about chickens. What yeah, do you we'll want to say back. about chickens? We'll come back to plants, <laughs> but let's talk about chickens because chickens has have boomed in the past 10 years. I mean, backyard chickens are, are I mean, man, I mean, this is like a, a major, major trend. And it has, it's something that a lot of people are thinking about, but it's, the idea of getting chickens is just overwhelming enough to where it prevents 80% of people from actually doing it. There's a lot of people thinking about it. And there's a lot of people listening to me right now who are thinking about it, who just haven't pulled the trigger because they're like, I've never had chickens. I don't know anything about chickens. This seems like it could be a little overwhelming for me. I just have a small backyard. I'm not really a farmer. Well, listen, if you have any of those reservations, my goal is to help you overcome those and reduce any, you know, reduce any hesitation that you might have for at least trying it because backyard chicken farming can be incredibly rewarding, especially if you have kids. Okay. So let's spend like 10 or 15 minutes here and let's talk about the, the hows, the do's and the don'ts of backyard chicken farming. Um, the first thing you want to do is if you live in a suburb or a city, I mean, most cities these days have ordinances now that allow for backyard chickens um, because there are a lot of people with backyard chickens. And luckily for you, that bridge has probably already been crossed by somebody else within your city limits if you live in a city. So you can check or you can just... You know, you can ask for forgiveness later, one or the other. But where do you? Ha so, so how do you? How do you get started with chickens? And and what are the benefits of having chickens? So, if you have kids, chickens are an are a really incredible experience to raise from chicks. So you have two options when it comes to chickens. You can buy hens that are already laying uh, locally. Or you can buy chicks. Literally, they mail them through to you through the mail, which is the weirdest thing in the world. They show up live and you take them out and you put them in a box and they come with care instructions. You put them in a box for a few weeks until they grow, grow a decent amount of feathers and can be outside on their own. And it is really, really an incredible process of watching these little hens grow up from baby chicks and then just a couple of months later, start laying eggs in a little backyard coop. I mean, it is one of the most incredible natural wonders of the world to watch. And kids absolutely love it. The chickens become pets. Um, you don't have to eat the chickens. You can. You don't have to eat the chickens. But these hens will eventually start laying eggs. Um, sometimes one egg a day per hen, depending on the breed. And they will a lay eggs for a very long time, upwards of, you know, Depending on the breed, it all varies by breed, but it could be 18 months, a couple of years for, for some breeds. And it's, it's a really, really, really neat experience to raise, to raise backyard chickens. And they provide you with a reliable source of food. Now, David, do you have chickens? 
We do. Yep. We've yeah. ke- kept chickens here for many, many years. Yeah. And we continue to do so. The grandkids love them. The kids mostly loved them. And uh, it's, I, I think one important point to make here, Creek, in raising your own chickens, especially if you have kids, uh, whether you have kids or not, I think it's just really important for us to be connected to our food source. We're so dependent upon going to the grocery store and just buying a dozen of eggs or, or you know, some tomatoes or carrots. You can grow this yourself. And it's just really important to know that there's work that goes into to your food production. What we're mostly talking about here is not an excessive amount of work unless you want to really, really get into it. But you're actually providing for your own needs. You're this is a this is a, is a self sort of kind of like a self-reliance education you're going to give yourself. And it's just really great to know where your food comes from and uh, you know, be able to produce it yourself. So and it's a, it's great to raise your your kids. We've been really blessed that for most of our kids growing up, we've been able to live in rural areas, and so they they've just come alongside us and learned with us, and helped us take care of the gardens and the chickens and the cows and the goat and the, all the other weird things we've done, <laughs> everything except guinea pigs. So, I. I, I think it's a really good thing to get into Creek. So I'll let you just co- go ahead and kind of continue. I love this picture with you and your daughter with the portable chicken coop in your backyard. Oh yeah. In the, in the book. Yeah. So this, and, and you know, I, I'm, you know, it's, I live what I preach, you know? And so I have two young kids, a little three and six year old. And uh, that this past winter, not, not this winter, but the winter before last, I ordered in some, actually we bought some chicks at Tractor Supply, our local Tractor Supply store. We're going to talk about where to get some chicks and supplies here in a minute. But we just bought some chicks at Tractor Supply. Um, I had a coop from a previous from a previous um, time when I had backyard chickens. I have several backyard chicken coops. We'll talk about those here in a minute. But I ordered, we went and bought some chicks and raised some chicks and, you know, my kids just fell in love with them. Um, and, you know, by the end of the summer, they were laying eggs. And that's the incredible thing about chickens is they are like little like egg factories, you know. And so they produce just an incredible food item. And imagine how valuable a handful of eggs would be from, you know, a, a small flock of backyard chickens in a situation where other food might not be available or just in everyday life. I mean, it's one of those items where you don't have to kill anything, you know, for those who don't really want to raise livestock and kill it and to eat it. You know, some people are like, man, I don't really want to like raise something and then kill it and eat it, you know, even though that's how it works with food, with meat. But you know, if you if you it's that if that's not your thing, well, I mean, eggs are like a really incredible food product that are so flexible. You can obviously eat them a thousand different ways and incorporate it into a bunch of different other dishes. So it's just such a usable food product, and it's so tangible. You know, it's like such a tangible food item to walk out and get an egg out of a chicken coop and go in and literally cook it. And contrary to what most people believe, like if you take a chicken egg out of a chicken coop, you can go set it on your kitchen counter because it has that natural coating from when it came out of the chicken. You just don't wash it off or anything. You sit that thing on the chicken on the kitchen counter for like a couple of months and that egg won't go bad. Now that'll blow some people's mind because we're used to eggs going bad and, you know, a couple of weeks because all those protective um, linings have been washed off of those eggs, you know, in the 
sale of those eggs through the grocery store chain, but eggs actually last a really long time on their own. Yep, they do. I mean, it's really the perfect packaging, right? Yep. And another thing that's really cool is that as far as feeding chickens, which you're probably going to get into, I'm not sure if you are, but uh, chicken uh, food scraps. So you can literally upcycle anything that pretty much anything that comes through your kitchen. And chickens love that gives them some variety. I mean, we do, we do a really high quality organic uh, feed mix here for our chickens, but man, do they love the scraps, anything, anything that ends up in the compost bucket that we don't want to compost. They, they, uh, they love that. So you're, you know, in a lot of ways you're, and I say, well, let me ask, let me say this. You've got a portable movable coop. We used to have what I called a chicken tractor and uh, chickens will actually find a lot of their own food and uh, you can minimize how much you have to feed them just by simply being able to uh, move your coop around. And if people don't think that's possible, they just have to look at page 68 in your book. <laughs> um, yeah. And these lightweight chicken tractors that you can kind of put together yourself. Again, tractor supply. If you get there earlier in the season, a little bit before Easter, because that's when they have the chickens there. And that's when they go really fast as pets, I guess. Um, you can pick up one of those. All right. Yeah. And cool. I would recommend, so and I would, for backyard chickens, I would recommend a movable chicken tractor. Okay. So if you search, yep. if you search chicken tractor on Google, you're going to find a thousand different options that you can order or build. You can buy them as a kit at tractor supply or at like a farm and fleet. Um, and I'll be honest with you, probably one of the best resources for something like that is your local Facebook marketplace or Craigslist even. People are always getting rid of chicken tractors. As many people getting into chickens are getting out of chickens. You know, it's like people getting into a boat. There's as many people buying a boat as there is selling a boat, okay? And so a lot of people are looking to get rid of these supplies. And when someone is ready to get rid of their chickens, they are ready to unload those chickens. Okay. And so, and that means that if you are there at the right time, you can come away with a screaming deal on a really nice chicken tractor and maybe even some laying hens. You could like literally get into a turnkey flock off of a local listing um, almost in just one weekend and have all the supplies you want, sometimes just for the cost of hauling it off. And so you absolutely should keep that in mind. But I would definitely do a chicken tractor that you can move around your yard. It doesn't mean you have to move it around. It just means you give it that option. There's a couple of wheels on the back. You just pick up the front and start rolling it. It gives those chickens the option of foraging fresh forage every day. And it really does help cut down on the amount of feed that you have to buy because you, you will have to buy chicken feed unless those chickens are free grazing all day long in a really big yard somewhere. And during the winter, when that is isn't an option, you're going to have to feed these chickens. And so you will have to buy some chicken feed in order to do that. Um, but that's also going to be available at a local tractor supply or any kind of farm store. Uh, besides a chicken tractor, there you do not need much in order to in order to raise backyard chickens. You need a watering a watering container, a food container. Um, both of those are going to be available where you buy your chickens or from who you buy your chickens. They're really really simple, really really inexpensive. If you want to get in on um, 
baby chicks. Right now, at the time that we're recording this podcast is February, beginning of February. And right now is when a lot of hatcheries start shipping baby chicks, okay, in the early, early spring, late winter. Um, a hatchery that I've liked to use before in the past is called hoovershatchery.com, H-O-O-V-E-R-S hatchery.com. You can order a variety of um, different types of chicks and they have really great care instructions on there as well. If you just look for the care instructions on their website, it will give you an idea what you need to do the first few weeks of that little baby chick's life. It's very, very simple. All you need is like literally a heat lamp. This past couple of, you know, a few months ago when we bought our chickens, we just had an old micro cardboard microwave box. They lived in that microwave box for like a month and a half and, um, and with, a, with a heat lamp you know, with a, with a, just a plastic butter bowl of water and another plastic butter bowl of food. So it wasn't very, anything complicated. You don't need to overcomplicate it. Yeah. It's really simple to get into another one that we've used is Murray McMurray. Yeah. People might be asking themselves, how do you get chickens from this, these places? Well, let me tell you, they actually ship them to the U S postal service (laughs) and they will drop them off at your door. Well, actually, I think they make you come pick them up because this time of the year, you've really got to kind of pick them up, even if you got some later in the year. That's how you've gotten yours, right? Just through yep. post office? Yeah, it might just come through the mail, yeah. you know? Yep. And so um, it, it's incre- it's crazy. And you open up a box and there's literally live little live baby chickens in it. Um, yep. But there's if you go to the back of like a Mother Earth News magazine or a Grit magazine, you're going to find tons of different ads for hatcheries that will ship live live baby chicks. But McMurray, like David said, and Hoover's Hatchery, those are two really great places to start looking. It, and you could buy baby chicks at Tractor Supply at the, in this in the springtime too, or any farm store, any local farm store. Maybe it's an independent farm supply store they're going to have baby chicks too because it's a big business in early spring yeah i remember questions too. when you go to these places all you have to there's usually going to be one or two people who uh they're the ones that go in they'll ask you what chick do you want you know they'll do the whole the whole thing but they know what they're talking about if you have any questions if if you're not really sure of all the supplies you might need um and you don't want to you know just use a little bowl like creek does and you want to get like the fancy fancy little like $2 things where you put a bunch of feed in the top and they, they kind of work on that for a week. Then you can ask them any questions you have. You know, one thing I would, I would ask, I would say, or or I would ask to see their, the, the, the baby chicks that have been sexed. Okay. So you definitely, you definitely want to make, yeah, you know, because I remember one year I pulled from this, the, the, the pin that's called the pullets and I ended up with three roosters. Right, right. Okay, so sext is, uh, go ahead and get into that really quick for for folks. Yeah, so it, they they sex these chickens in a real weird way. It's like it has to do something with like squeezing <laughs> them and how they're, you know, squirting. I don't even well, it know. Depends. But... Yeah, it really depends on the chicken too. Like there's, <laughs> usually there's oftentimes with many chickens that are commercially produced because they're usually healthier chickens and they, people want chickens that either do really well at producing like a good meat producer for the amount of time and food you put into to them, or they want um, good egg producers, or they want one that's like, that does both really well. So uh, depending on the breed, 
they have different characteristics with some breeds where they can really tell with a high degree of accuracy whether it's a male or a female. Really don't want you really don't want males. I'm just gonna say that. Just so so if it's if they're available, and I probably would recommend to anybody just getting into this, and I think this is where you're getting you really want to make sure that you're getting uh uh hens you know hen chicks and, and uh it, it yeah go ahead i was gonna say and you want not only hen chicks but you want laying hen chicks because there's meat uh-huh. birds and there's laying That's birds because yep. if you get a meat bird they're gonna have huge breasts <laughs> I mean, that thing, it's like topples over when it walks. I'm not even kidding because we got one this past year and they're not really good layers. They are bred for meat. And so they got these huge, like they'll be toppling over forward while they're running. It's kind of weird. What's that? Yeah. 10 weeks to harvest. We probably about every two years we do somewhere between 10 and 19 and just fill up that part of the freezer with, with our own, our own meat birds. But usually they're about 10 I mean, if you want to do meat birds, it's it's kind of a another thing, but it's essentially chick to the time that you you actually harvest them is about ten weeks, and they grow really fast. And um, yeah, so you definitely want to make sure that you're getting laying hens. And yeah. most of the ones you're going to find in tractor supply are going to be that, but you definitely want to ask. Right, and and make sure that that person you're asking knows what they're talking about. And just, just confirm, ask them twice, <laughs> you know, because if you're doing chickens and you want eggs, you want to make sure you're getting an egg, uh, a female, A, and then you want to make sure you're getting a laying bird, B, um, yep. if you're going to like a local tractor supply versus ordering online. Yep. And then there's some good producing hens. We won't get too much into this. Uh, what I would recommend to people is go to Hoover Hatchery, order their catalog, or go to Murray McMurray. They'll send you a catalog, and they'll actually talk to you about the disposition and the the properties of their chickens because both of them have really mastered the science of producing high quality high quality chickens that are disease resistant and uh, give you what you're looking for. You know, for instance, a lot of people like Leghorns, which produce white eggs, are one of the actually the few chickens that produce white white eggs most uh chickens actually produce brown eggs um but they're used so much in uh commercial production because they're high production however leghorns are not the friendliest chickens (laughs) yeah so it's not that complicated but maybe that first spot would just be getting online with with one of these two hatcheries that we've talked about we're talking to somebody that you know that's already doing chickens. They'll be able to point you in the right direction in most cases. Yeah. And the closeout chickens, um, I'm going to give a website here for a really interesting coop. This isn't the cheapest coop, but I had one of these. It's called an Eggloo, E-G-G-L-O-O, Eggloo, when I had a little tiny house with a little tiny backyard and I had two hens. And, and you should start with at least three hens. That way you got a three, so three plus when it comes to hens. But I had two hens in this little backyard, and I needed a nice little compact coop, and I got this egg glue, and I really like it. And so this particular website has some really neat coops, including some tractors called um, omelet, O-M-L-E-T dot U-S. 
and it's an international company, but they just have some really neat coupes. If you're looking for a coupe that's kind of different and a little bit stylized, this is kind of a cool, a cool coupe concept from Omelette. Nice. So let me just add one more thing to chickens, and then we'll move on to our next topic. Uh, with chickens, so basically three things chickens produce that are valuable, eggs, meat, and fertilizer. If you can, in most cases, there, there will be a point where your laying hens are not really producing anymore. There are people, if you don't want to butcher them, and you don't want to just like set them free in a in a state park or something like that, <laughs> and watch and watch their demise. Um, again, go back to Facebook. Those Facebook groups, local groups. There's actually people who adopt chickens. They just like they like having chickens around. They don't care if they lay eggs or not, and they'll adopt your chickens in most cases. We've done that several times with the ones that have exceeded their laying their better laying days were behind them. One thing. So you do have eggs, you do have meat. Um, real quick one on laying hen meat. There are some varieties that lay really well and actually uh, are, are good for harvesting their meat. The thing with laying hens is oftentimes they're, they're a couple of years old and they're about only good for stewing meat anyway. But the one thing we didn't really talk about much, Creek, is fertilizer. And everywhere you put your chicken tractor, your chicken, you're probably going to leave them in there. If you're, if you're as bad of a farmer as I am, you're probably going to end up leaving them in there a little bit too long. And you're going to get uh, quite a bit of their mess building up on the grass underneath yeah. there. Yeah. Here's a little tip for you. If you've got enough property where you do want to start a garden at some particular point, but you've just decided that you want to start with chickens or you have a garden and part of it you're using this year, part of it you're going to uh, go ahead and um, expand next year. Start there, put your chicken tractor on there and kind of rotate it around. Uh, chicken poop is actually a very balanced fertilizer. So uh, that's one way to actually uh, help develop your garden, help develop your soils too with your chickens. Don't forget about that they make lots and lots of fertilizer. That's a great idea. Okay, Creek. Let's talk about rabbits. Okay. You go ahead. <laughs> I think have you, you done got that? A, you've got an experience with rabbits. I've got a personal story about rabbits. I've never I've eaten many rabbits. I've never personally farmed rabbits. I have friends that do, uh, but I've, I, I don't have personal farming experience with rabbits. Okay. So rabbits are actually a very, very, very lean meat. They don't have a whole lot of fat on them. So one thing just that I'm sure you've talked about this in your courses and everything. Uh, if you were in a survival situation, there's actually something called rabbit starvation. And you can go back to the Lewis and Clark journals to see like those guys, I, Creek, you probably remember because you're more of a student of history than I am. But they had guys that were actually starving, eating high quantities, very high quantities of meat uh, back in their explorations. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've definitely, I've definitely read that and heard that. You know, what's interesting on the flip side of that is you had people who weren't starving who were eating only pemmican, ah. which is which is yep. the grass-fed meat and grass-fed tallow. So there yep. is a miracle food there, um, meat related, 
but the yeah. fat is a critical component to that. The minerals yep. and vitamins contained in the fat. But that's a side note. Yep. But we need. But so you basically need in a in a situation you want to have fats, carbs, uh, fats, carbs, and uh, protein. And so rabbits are a very lean meat. They can be a very good meat. Um, back in Y2K, this was a long time ago now, we ended up getting, we did what a lot of people do. We went to like a, a Lowe's or a tractor supply type place. And they had, they had some rabbits there. So I decided that, hey, I was going to buy the kids rabbits for Easter. So we did. We bought rabbits for Easter. We raised them up. I think that was, uh, that must have been like 1999. Y2K was coming up. I was, uh, we were living on a uh, rural property in Vermont. We were just getting into some homesteading stuff. Um, We decided to, I decided, hey, why don't we breed the rabbits? (laughs) And, and, you know, at least we have some meat through Y2K. Uh, Long story short, I didn't know what I was doing. We did end up breeding a lot of rabbits. And I guess my my story is that uh, it's not it's not a good idea to start any livestock off that you are going to at some point process slash butcher and eat. It's not a good thing to start those off as pets. That's one. That's one thing. <laughs> yeah. The, the other thing is um, rabbits. Rabbits are actually they're pretty tough. And our rabbits ended up getting pretty big. And I used a book back then called Back to Basics. Do you remember that book? It was a Reader's Digest. Maybe you can still get it. Maybe there's an updated version. But that's where I learned how to butcher a rabbit. And I did not do it right. So that's essential, essentially my Y2K experience. Um, we, After butchering a couple of rabbits, I decided that that was not my gig. And uh, we found homes for them. How about you, Creek? Well, I I grew up with a friend who they his family. Um, he was a friend of mine, and his family grew rabbits as meat rabbits to to literally feed the family. So that was a part of their food. Um, and so whenever I would go over to his house, I would participate. You know, we would I would watch him butcher and like you know, kill the rabbits. And I always found that really, really interesting. And I can tell you from personal experience on seeing that operation and being around that operation, that raising rabbits, even though I've never done it, I can tell you that it's a little bit more involved than, than dealing with chickens. Chickens are really, really easy. And I mean, they are about as no maintenance as you could possibly get when it comes to a a livestock animal. And animals and rabbits, from my experience, were a little more involved than the chickens. You had to watch them a little bit more closely. Um, Certainly processing the rabbit was a little bit more involved than getting eggs. (laughs) And, um, you know, it was just, uh, I don't know, it was... um, I I could just, I just know based upon my memories of that experience that dealing with rabbits is a, is, I would say a little bit next level than even chickens as far as livestock goes. Wouldn't you say David, cause you've done both. I, I would say so. 
So here's the bottom line. We started chickens and rabbits about the same time. We're no longer doing rabbits and we're still doing chickens for meat and for eggs and for fertilizer. Yeah. Yeah. So again, it's a next level thing. One nice thing about rabbits, they make a lot of fertilizer and it actually comes out in these little, these little perfect, almost like perfectly packaged uh, greenish fertilizer pellets. You literally can take them. They're nicely balanced. You can take them, put them on your garden, uh, use them specifically for fertilizer. Uh, but for my, from my perspective, I probably would not, I wouldn't recommend that to somebody unless they were really intrigued with it. Well, I think that is a really great segue rabbits because they're so related to the next thing I want to talk about, which is guinea pigs. And I actually yes. do have experience raising guinea pigs okay. um, for meat. My notebook is out, bro. Yeah. So several handful of years ago, I read an article about, and I didn't, and I had never heard before of guinea pigs being raised for meat. And I read an article about South America, about how they raise and have for since the beginning of time because guinea pigs are a a native wild animal in the Andes mountains of South America. So it's hard to imagine like little guinea pigs running around wild, but they do. And there, there's a hunting, there's hunting guinea pigs in that part of the world. And they are definitely on the menu in that part of the world. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But I actually, I actually raised some guinea pigs and bred some guinea pigs um, and experimented with the idea. I was really into experimenting about alternative food sources, um, you know, off grid type. I was, there was a phase of my life where I was really, really into that. And so I experimented with, um, raising guinea pigs and breeding them and, um, having little guinea pig litters. And, uh, I learned a lot about guinea pigs during that time. And I am convinced that, and it may be this way with rabbits. I don't know because I've never raised them, but I am convinced that, the solution, the small livestock solution for meat, for someone who is very, very serious about getting something in place for, you know, a total collapse and they wanted meat on the table for their family in a small footprint setting. I am convinced that that solution is guinea pigs. Um, And this is not only from personal experience with raising them and see how fast they breed and how durable they are as a, as a livestock animal. Um, these little guinea pigs, they come out fully furred with their eyes open. They are not like rabbits where they are naked and completely helpless. I mean, these guinea pigs come out and they look like little guinea pigs. They look like little mini versions of mommy and daddy. Um, it's funny because guinea pigs are called sore are called sow and boar (laughs) the females are called sows and the males are called boars imagine a little male guinea pig called a boar but um those little guinea pigs come out if you've ever raised guinea pigs as pets you know they come out fully furred eyes open by the end of day one they are actually starting to nibble on mama's food a little bit like the like the grass and the hay um they They'll, they'll suckle for several weeks, but they will immediately, even on day one, start eating and foraging. And, um, within just a a couple of months, they are ready to breed again or eat. 
and um, they are in. They only eat two things. You're only feeding them fresh greens like timothy or like a hay or clover, alfalfa. They can be by the bale or it can be fresh cut. They love also like fresh green scraps and things like that. Um, but it's just it's just literally like alfalfa, hay, and timothy hay and water. It is a very, very clean meat. Um, it, they are very easy to feed and protect. They are in a coop. You can put them in a coop, very similar to a chicken. As and they do, they do really well in cold weather, and you can have them in a really small footprint environment. Um, as long as you have like um, a an internal, an interior space, they do not like to be out in the open because they feel very threatened, and so they like to be able to go into like a little like a little hutch inside, not only to protect them from the weather, but so that they feel protected in general. It's just good for them. Um, like for example, like just to run, crunch a few numbers here, just to give you some numbers around guinea pigs. Well, first of all, the Peru National Health Institute reported that the nutritional, in comparison to the, to beef, lamb, and poultry, they rank guinea pig superior nutritionally to those three categories of meat through testing, international, through national testing. And which I thought was really interesting. And Peruvians consume over 65 million guinea pigs a year. And to put that into perspective, in America, we eat 34 million cows a year. So they consume an absolute ton of guinea pigs. Like this is a real food in in that part of the world. And anybody who's Peruvian or has been to Peru, they already, they're nodding their head like, Creek, you're not telling me anything new. But um, it's new to a lot of people. Um, 98% of Peruvian rural homes raise guinea pigs for food, which I thought was a staggering statistic. I mean, that really blew my mind. That's almost 100% of the people in rural homes in Peru grow guinea pigs for food, which is really crazy. Uh, two boars and 20 sows will produce 200 guinea pigs a year. And if those are not eaten, then that will then in two years that they will produce 6,000 guinea pigs. Wow. That, that once they have their babies and then their babies start to breed in two years, that number two boars and 20 sows will turn into 6,000 guinea pigs. So that gives you an idea on the, the exponential potential of breeding guinea pigs. Um, the litters are typically three to five guinea pigs. In my experience, that's what, that's what mine produce anywhere from three to five. Um, I had just one boar and four sows and, um, I mean, they started producing litters of guinea pigs. It, I mean, I couldn't even keep track of them. I had to stop because they were producing <laughs> guinea pigs so fast. <laughs> it was crazy. I mean, I was all of a sudden like in the guinea pig business, you know, I mean, but you, I really <laughs> saw firsthand that a couple of boars and a handful of sows I mean, I believe without the, beyond the shadow of a doubt that you could keep a family of four or six in meat indefinitely. Like you would not have a meat issue at all if you had just a couple of boars and a few sows of guinea pigs and a small footprint area in order to feed them. And I'm not, and I don't, and I'm not convinced that that area even has to be outside. That area can be in a garage, in a basement. They produce really clean waste like rabbits. It's they're they're a member of the rodent family, so it's like little rat poop. 
you know, droppings. It's really clean. What else here? Gestation is normally like about 60, a little over 60 days. Um, they're, they're pregnant for about 60 days and then they have, then they, then they, then they have live hair on young. Uh, what what am I missing here, David? They're they're easy to clean. They're a little fattier than I've cleaned a lot of rabbits in my life, and I've dressed a lot of guinea not a lot, but a fair amount of guinea pigs in my days too. And they're definitely fattier than a rabbit. They're definitely fattier gotcha. than a rabbit. Yep. So as far as like their their final size, like how much meat would you get out of a? Yeah, so pig? that's a really good question because that's going to depend on the breed of guinea pig, just like the breed of rabbit. So like the pet guinea pigs that you're going to find at like a pet store, these aren't the guinea pigs that they're eating down in Peru. So they eat a larger version, which is I don't know in between one point five and two pound guinea pig. So that's a pretty big guinea pig. A lot of the ones you see in pet stores here, they're smaller. They're under a pound easily. Um, but there are two in particular breeds. If you can find them, it's called the Inti, the I-N-T-I, Inti, and the Andino, A-N-D-I-N-O. And there are some guinea pigs that are exported from Peru into the United States as food. Uh, I mean, at the numbers of like a thousand per week in, in some, for some of these farms. And so there are like Peruvian communities where guinea pig is being eaten in the United States right now, um, as we speak. Um, and there are pushes to create, um, you know, guinea pig as a food item, but overcoming the stigma of it being a pet is, you know, a a really big issue here in the States. Um, but there are a lot of guinea pig breeders here in the States and they breed all types of different varieties. Uh, and so if you were to want to get into the personal side of farming guinea pigs, um, for meat, then you want one of those bigger breeds, you know, versus one of like the smaller pet breeds. That is really interesting. I'm, I, I am, why did you stop doing it? Just too many? <laughs> well, no, I was only doing it as an experiment. Uh, it wasn't something that I wanted to do a long time. It was actually something that I was just really curious about. You know, I'm a very survival curious culinary experiment experimenter, you know, not only in the form of wild edibles and foraging, but, you know, chickens and even some of the more taboo things like guinea pigs, you know, um, I, I find that stuff really, really, really intriguing, especially when I learned that there are entire, there are countries that have this as almost a primary food source in the meat department. And, you know, I just, I just find that stuff very, very, very intriguing and interesting. And I like to experiment. Um, uh, with that kind of, you know, with that kind of thing, because it's, you know, this is the, I'm in this business and I also find all of that stuff really, really interesting. Creek. I can't believe it. We still have, we literally have half of the topics that we planned on talking about today yet to cover. And we are out of time, brother. What do you well, think? this is a good one. We I, did it. We did some good. We did a lot of good stuff here. Yeah, we didn't touch on edible landscaping or wild foraging or our raised beds or anything. Yeah, we didn't talk about beekeeping, and I think I think beekeeping goes really well with with the whole you know, gardening aspect. Me so too. next time, next time we'll talk part about four. beekeeping. <laughs> part four. Yep, gardening. It's important. People really want to know this stuff, and I think uh, sharing especially your experience with people is, is helping a lot of people do these, uh, you know, just even again, getting back to our goal, 
if we can save people even a year of research or, you know, hey, maybe you don't want to start with rabbits. Sounds like a good idea. Mm-hmm. Start, start with chickens. You know, that can save you. That can save you a couple of harvests. It can save you a couple of years, uh, you know, just retooling and everything. So next time we'll talk about beekeeping, gardening with raised beds. We'll share some really practical tips there about what to plant, how to plant it, edible landscaping, like you said, uh, preserving produce. We'll get into some wild foraging and, you know, whatever else we come up with. <laughs> I, think, I don't think we'll have any problems filling up another show. No, me neither. And I really want to talk about edible landscaping. I think of the of everything we've got for next time, I think edible landscaping I'm most excited about. I think you're right because it's something that almost everybody can can do whether they have a garden or not. All right, Creek. So as we move out of here, I'm not sure how good we did giving action steps for each item, but I think they were intertwined in they were. Uh, each point. Definitely. Yep. So uh, as we leave out of here, I just like to ask what are one or two things that you would love to leave people with? I think everyone at some point, unless you live in an apartment, should experiment with backyard chickens. I think it's something you can, you should consider. It's a small, it's a small investment of time and money. And even if you decide you don't like it, you can easily unload those chickens and that little coop on somebody who wants to get into it. I'm telling you, it's a lot easier to get out of chickens than it is even into chickens, okay? Because everyone's, there's so many people wanting to get into chickens and they would love to buy a turnkey coop. And so I would love to see everyone listening experiment with backyard chickens. I think it's a, it's a really good life experience. I think that's a fantastic place to start. The other thing I would just throw in there is just a re-emphasis on now is a really good time to start looking at your Lowe's store, your Home Depot. And if you have not gardened before, just do it. You can grab, grab one of those bags of potting soil, a couple of pots, some seeds or some, some uh, herbs or tomatoes that are already growing, or you can buy something that's you know, it's already established. It's in a pot. It's growing well. It's got a trellis with it and get into that. All right, Creek. I appreciate you, man. So how can people find you uh, following this podcast? Creekstewart.com. You can sign up for my email list and I'd be happy to share with you survival tips and tricks. And the book that we've been mentioning is The Disaster Ready Home. It's my new book about yes. sheltering in place. And um, that, of course, is available anywhere books are sold. Excellent. And be sure to watch that sprouting course. Be sure to watch that sprouting course. That's a that's a huge one, guys. If you have not watched the sprouting course, go do yourself a favor and sign up for that at creekstewart.com because that's like su- super valuable information and you're going to love it. And it's a ton of free information. I over-deliver. <laughs> yes, you do. And uh, when you go over to Creek's website, you're going to have an opportunity to sign up for his newsletter. And man, I got a, I got a newsletter email from you today that I think will help out a lot of people. And uh, always, it's like once or twice a week, you're always putting out good content and just little nuggets. You always over-deliver Creek. And you over-delivered here, and we appreciate it. I appreciate you, and we'll see you next time. Okay, man. Talk to you. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd be honored if you would help a brother out and support the podcast in two ways. First, subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already done so and give us an honest five-star rating and review 
on Apple iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And pay it forward by sharing this episode with your friends and loved ones via text, email, or on social media. It's free to do so, and it's a win-win-win for everyone. And drop us a line using our new podcast email, survivalshowpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know who you'd like to see on the podcast and what topics you'd like us to cover. And send us your questions. If we feature your question, we'll give you a shout-out on the podcast and do our best to give you a great answer. And don't forget to go over to ultimatesurvivaltips.com where you can grab today's show notes for free simply by clicking on the podcast button at the top of the page. And while you're there, check out my MSK-1 survival knife and my coming soon super secret new knife, plus my custom-designed EDC survival kits and take 20% off my new tiny first aid guide by using code FIRSTAID20 at checkout. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. We'll see you next time on the Survival Show podcast. And remember, keep it simple, be positive, and stay sharp. Survival Show.